Hello and welcome to another fantastic episode of the Challenging University podcast. I'm your host, Tony Kent. Now, how does it feel to be the first black rugby player in the UK and the first black ski instructor for artificial slopes in the UK and the first person to coordinate a major public event finishing in the mall? And how about also having 600 of your rock photographs licensed to Getty Images? And how did you do all of these things when you began life as a ward of court? Sol Najai has had an incredible career spanning multiple industries, which includes a number of firsts. In this episode, he generously shares his memories and insights, including his early life in a children's home, challenging negative narratives and beliefs held by people in power, joining the RAF, entering the world of WASPs rugby, teaching paratroopers to ski, how he came to photograph some of the biggest names in rock, his experiences in crowd safety management, the London Marathon, the Olympic Games and Live Aid and the power for asking for what you want. This is a fantastic episode, truly inspiring. My thanks go to Sol for sharing his time. Hi Sol. Hi there, how are you doing? I'm great, well, I mean I'm especially great because you've agreed to come on the Challenging University podcast. Thank you very much for agreeing to share a bit of your time with, with the audience. Um, we've spoken a little bit. I've been following you closely on the social media and online. But for the listeners today and the listeners to come, could you please introduce yourself with your full name and what it is you do today? Well, hi, my name is Solomon Najai, which uh, is a bit of a mouthful. So on the good days, most people call me Sol. I guess the bad days, we're not going to go there. <laughs> what is it I do? Um, I think like a lot of people during COVID, I was contemplating my navel thinking, you know, mm. like the universe, where do I go? So it's it's really split now. Technically, I'm semi-retired. Well, it doesn't feel like that. I'm working just as hard, but... Uh, yeah. Not so many people pay me these days, you know, is yeah. the way it works. <laughs> when you look at you look at the three things that I actually do is um, I'm actually the president of WAS Rugby Club. Uh, it's the amateur side of WAS Rugby Club. Very, very proud of that because I mm -hmm. came through the ranks having played for them in the amateur era and gone all the way through. Um, mm -hmm. I also exhibit um, rock photographs. I have 600 photographs on Getty Images, which get syndicated around the world. Unfortunately, they do pay me for that as well. Um, and it's of the golden era of everyone in from um, Queen, Bowie, you know, George Michael, uh, ACDC, you name it, they're all there. A yeah. little treasure trove that um, I had when I was managing the stewarding at uh, Wembley. I can come on to that later. Yeah. And the last thing is I'm a director and a, a, and a trustee of a charity um, that uh, raises about £200,000 a year and we give it away to good causes. So uh, that's a very altruistic, nice uh, area to be in um, ah. at this moment in time. And let's give that charity a plug then. What's its name? It's What's Legends Charitable Foundation. Um, it's a bunch of us rugby players that go and have a good time and uh, manage to raise some money on the side, if I'm absolutely honest. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. I mean, just, you know, some huge names in there, some recognisable organisations. Um, we're going to need to get on to this. I, um, before I get myself down a complete rabbit hole of knowing just what it's like to be quite so close to Freddie Mercury or Madonna, tell me about your secondary school education. What are your memories of it? Mm. Good, actually, surprisingly enough. Mm -hmm. um, but you have to put this into context. This isn't, um, <laughs> where do you start? You have to remember that at the age of three, I was made a ward of court. Uh, it's unfortunate my mother was destitute and my sister and I were literally on the streets being fed yeah. uh, bread that was left for the pigeons. So we were made a ward of court. We bounced around various institutions, you know, foster homes, et cetera, for a couple of years, uh, and then ended up in the National Children's Home in Sheringham on the North Norfolk coast, which is far away from London as you could possibly get, you know. Yeah. So within that environment, and it was not a good environment, you know, it was, it was pretty awful. There, there were 50, 50 kids there, five families, uh, somebody in charge of each of the families. Our person that was in charge was called Sister Gwyneth. Um, how can I describe Sister Gwyneth? Um, put it like this, 2014, she was convicted for child cruelty. Wow. And 
it was not a great experience but as a kid you actually don't know the difference you've got no nothing to measure it against because uh, unfortunately you couldn't have people over and you couldn't go to their houses so you're fairly isolated but as far as school was concerned it was a release it's the one time you could go um be with other people uh, yeah. be who you are etc um but school was it was it was a funny one for me because in the junior school um I think my sister and I were the only black kids there so we had a, yeah. a challenging time you know with you learn to fight a bit and look after yourself mm-hmm. and I had a choice at the age of 10 do I go to the brand new secondary modern school which is 10 minutes down the road yeah or do I get on a train spend 45 minutes or an hour going to North Morsham Grammar School mm-hmm. which uh Horatio Nelson went to so you can imagine what that was like it was old it was decrepit all right good education standard I decided I'm going to go to the secondary modern school so I failed the 11 plus deliberately okay Um, I was just about to ask you that so you were bright enough to pass the uh, 11 plus but you elected at that early age when I mean goodness you can you can still you you can argue was I bright enough I I think I probably was um but I I, I deliberately failed it. I was not going to this North Walsham mm. school where Nelson went. There's just no way on this planet. And any friends that I did have were all going to the second modern school, you know, so yeah. that's the sort of area I was, I, was, I was associating with. But it was interesting because everybody has a, has a school teacher, don't they, that uh, they remember. Mm. Mine was Mr. Crawley. Now, Mr. Crawley's one of these guys, he could take a lesson. I don't matter how hostile the kids were, they would <laughs> all listen and he could manage it. He was just an amazing teacher. Yeah. And he pulled me to one side and he said, uh, he said, because I was in the bottom rung, you know, I was a 1C. And he said, mm. uh, there's something funny about your 11 plus exams. He said, it's the most, con- what, what did he say? It was like constructive failure, I think is what he said. He yeah. said, you're brought to the mission. <laughs> I went, mm, and I told him the story and he said, all right, come on, you're going to have to pull your socks up. So I went from 1C to 2B to 3A. Mm. So I just went through the ranks, mm. um, which was good. But it did have its problems, though. Um, I'm good at sciences, mathematics, you know, that whole side. I don't know which bit of the brain it works. Mm. When it comes to languages, terrible. Absolutely terrible. Mm. And the French class and me just did not get on. And it came to a hit when I was sat there. I had a book there and I had a comic inside the book and I'm reading it. thinking he wouldn't notice. And I I was concentrating so much on this. The French teacher came around the back, saw me, (laughs) put me around the ear. Different yeah. times, and told yeah. me to get out of the French class and never come back again. So, mm. ironically, that was one of the best things that ever happened to me, because I had two or three free lessons a week. Yeah, uh, and I went to the library, and yeah. I was interested in how things work. You know, so I don't know televisions, washing machines, radios, whatever it is. Mm. They had a magazine called Practical Wireless. Yeah, wireless told you how to make a radio. Yeah, and uh, I thought I can do that. So junk shop down in Sheringham, and I knew the bloke. So he said, "Yeah, go help yourself." So I'd be in the back of televisions and radios and radiograms or whatever, pulling out resistors, capacitors, and bits and pieces until I had everything I needed, um, including. Do you remember um, hearing aids when you were kids? They used to be sort of here, and they used to have a pink earphone. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I found one of those. It was broken, but I took the earphone and yeah. I, I made the radio and it worked. I, you know, you clipped it down onto the radio for the earth. I was the aerial. You had a ferrite core, which you chewed, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. So the children, when I was in bed in the children's home and they're doing the inspections, I had the earpiece yeah. down here, the pillow. They couldn't see a thing, thought I was asleep. I'm listening to Radio Luxembourg, the pirate radio stations. It yeah. was just, just fantastic, you know. So the reason for saying that is because it came in very handy later on when I was thinking what to do. Mm. But back to what you said about the school, um, I kind of flourished at school. I was good at athletics. I was good at basketball. I could play badminton. I was good at sport. Mm. Um, I was. I, I did reasonably well in exams as well. But, you know, it, it, the, the, the challenge I had, I guess, if I'm absolutely honest is friendships because if you 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 could have friendships at school but they didn't extend outside of that yeah you're in those formative teenage years you know you need interaction you need that whole sip and stuff that goes on I didn't have that you know I went from school to children's home home, school and there was this 
blank there, you know. So it was pretty tough, but I enjoyed school. It was it, it's a good got really good memories. And and something that you said there that I had never appreciated or understood, where where I grew up there was a children's home and there were children that lived there that came to our school and we didn't see them, but I never knew that they were being purposely excluded from being around other families. I didn't. Yeah, I mean, I can't say this for every every um, children's home, but certainly when I was in, you you lived a fairly monastic experience. You know, when you're in there, it was, and uh, if you uh, any misdemeanors, anything, you know, were punished. It was it was it wasn't a great childhood, and I didn't really fully appreciate it till you leave. Yeah. You talk to other people, you think, oh, what did you know? You know, because you've got no uh, nothing to measure it against, no parameters. So it's 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 mm. it's not easy. It's not easy. <laughs> And so when it came to sitting exams, would you have been O-level? What, what yeah, happened I, to I, you in, at that point? Secondary modern schools then, you see. Grammar schools yeah. took O-levels. Secondary okay. modern took the uh, CSEs, they CSEs. were called, before right. they merged all together. Yes. And I okay. got eight CSEs. I got A's in, I think, about seven of the, six of them, and then got yeah. a B and a C. C was religious okay. instruction. I was never that. Uh, um, <laughs> I wonder um, why. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> but yeah. uh, so so within the school environment, I did pretty well. You know, it was good. Yeah. So, so there was, a, you know, I was, I was quite pleased. Um, and uh, I think I think it was when when you start looking beyond that, mm. it gets interesting. Yeah. Because um, you've got to start thinking about well. You know, was there the potential to go to university? Was there the further education? You know, what what you're going to do? Mm. Um, you're in a provincial town in the North Norfolk coast, yeah. which was just you know, it felt as though it was ten years behind the rest of the world. Yeah. And that industry, how we used sharing. to live. <laughs> yeah, you know, there was no internet. There was no, you know, yeah. things used to trickle up from 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 London, you know, fashion or whatever it was. Yeah. And uh, it was it was a, a different world then. So you had this sort of brace of great results um, and yet you could, you know, you could leave school and when you were 16 anyway. What yeah. um, what was sort of presented to you as, as the opportunities for your next steps? Was college, uni ever discussed? <laughs> um, again, if you just step backwards, uh, the, the I remember at 12, um, the GLC, the Greater London Council, responsible yeah. for me placing me in the children's home. Um, at what they there was a number of tick box, box exercises that used to happen. You know, social work would come up once a year, just sort of buy you a cup of tea, you know, then go back to London. At yeah. twelve, an educational psychologist came up, and they had to yeah. run a series of tests. Yeah. And uh, I, I can really, I can distinctly remember this because I had the morning off school, but I, I was there, and uh, they ran the test, and this woman just looked at me, and she said. You know, you're quite a bright lad. You could go to university. Right. Nobody had said this to me at all. You know, absolutely yeah. nobody. This was quite a shock. And, I, and then, yeah. and then she said, "Why didn't you pass your eleven plus?" And I got a terrible story. And she said, yeah. "I'm sure you'll make up for it in time." You know, and I mean, it was a real good shot in the arm. Yeah. But then, then reality strikes. In the children's home, you had no encouragement, you had no support, you were just labelled. You've got to remember the person, the superintendent in charge of the children's home, his previous job had been uh, to run a bore store. Right. And, okay, yeah. you know, for, you know, yeah, yeah. And I know what they are. Yeah. Then when you've got that mentality coming into a children's home, you know, I wasn't there because I'd done anything wrong. I was made a water corn, but yeah. he was always looked upon as a problem. You're looked upon as, and there was no expectation that you know you were going to do well um mm. you were just going to be let, let, let. i read my report some years later mm. and if you it's quite interesting when you look back and at the time at school i was the head boy they made me head boy in the fifth year i've got a lovely yeah. photograph of me the head girl and all the prefects around and me beaming away yeah, yeah. Um, while i was that and succeeding at school yeah, Mr. Woman, the superintendent, wrote, um, "At best, he will be a lorry driver in and out of prison." Wow. That's, that gives you an idea of, of of kind of the thought processes that were going through his mind. The guy in charge, mm. I should say, I don't have a criminal record. 
I've never got an HGV, but I did get a helicopter pilot's license. <laughs> a so uh, very bad judge of character, this guy. Yeah. I was going to say, I, I know you would never do such a thing, but in my mind, I've got an image of you just like buzzing his his garden, just in a flight path <laughs> in a helicopter. <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I did. See, I did see him before he died. There was a reunion, and uh, wow, it was it was quite quite interesting because he was in defensive mode then, and he said, mm. "I'd like to say I never harmed any of the children." Mm. Now that's an opening statement to me, and I went, wow. "Does he have a selective memory?" I remember getting caned, the slipper. I remember being deprived, of, you know, all that sort of stuff. Mm. And I think had he lived longer he would have probably been charged as well for some of his behavior you know that's, that's all i was saying um so you know did did was you encouraged to go uh, additional education no were you encouraged to go to university definitely not i wasn't perceived to be that sort of person um so what did i do i, I went to kings lynn technical college yeah i was going to do a teaching course to, for a levels mm -hmm. and the challenge of when you've been suppressed for years and years, and suddenly, <laughs> I, you know, I'm in digs and I, I had the greatest time of my life. It was wonderful. You know, yeah. you, 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 I got a lecture on the student union. I organized the discos and dances. I, I just discovered life. Yeah. It was wonderful. Yeah. The downside is a year later, I'm opening my exam results. Uh -huh. I failed every single exam. Okay. And that is just seared in my brain. It's just one of those things when you open up, mm. I didn't work. I mean, of course, you know, I deserve to fail them. I didn't put any effort in. Yeah. But it's just that huge sense of failure. It was the first time I'd really experienced that. Mm. Um, and it's true to say I've never failed an exam since then. I've taken quite a few exams. I just yeah. will not. You know, I will bone up. I will make sure I know what I'm talking about. I will pass exams. Yeah. So that was kind of a bit of a salutary lesson, you know. Um, but, but I mean, I've been the most popular bloke in the entire college. It's well, like, well, we, souls here, we, it's party time. Yeah, <laughs> we certainly had our moments, trust me. <laughs> it was, you know, it was really good. I mean, you just, it was like a coiled up spring and something. Yeah. Wow. And, yeah. Uh, and I don't regret it at all. I really don't. I, I had a good time. I had a good time. Mm -hmm. um, uh, where does the so, rugby come into the, are you coming on to this? Because I'm thinking, I mean, there's a hell of a lot. You've had, I'm just thinking helicopters playing rugby uh photography i mean where does this all begin um well first you have to leave the children's home i mean that was a 16 i left the children's home i then yeah. had a year at technical college and yeah. as mrs Fanangium, she was kind of like a foster mother i used to go and stay mm -hmm. with her and i'd be digs during the week at college yeah um, i then had a, a that seminal moment of failure and i had to yeah. decide what you're going to do yeah um I'm on the North Norfolk coast. I don't want to be there. No disrespect no. to you know, sharing them. I want to see the world. I want to get out. Yeah. I want to, you know. Um, and I just thought, oh, no, I'm going to get a job up here. I'm going to be. So I sat down. And one thing I had done at school, um, I'd listened to a couple of guys talking and they'd said, oh, I've just got my gliding license. Mm. And I thought, wow, that's interesting. How'd you do that? And he said, mm. uh, ATC, the Air Training Corps. Ah, okay, and yeah. There was an air training corps over in Cromer, which was mm -hmm. the next town over. Yeah. And uh, I said, well, so what do you have to do? He said, you join it. You've got to be there for six months, and then it opens up doors. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this is this is part of my mentality is that finding ways to do things. It's not always about money. You can usually find ways around it, yeah. which I've done during my life. Um, joined the ATC. I had to salute a few people, you know, and all that sort of thing. Um, and six months later, because I was good at athletics, I represented the ATC Norfolk in this championship thing and did quite well. Yeah. But then I said, if I do that, can I do my gliding license? And the guy oh. said, yeah, I'll still do that. So I went off to uh, a gliding place in Norfolk and uh, cut a long story short, I got my what they call an A and a B. And what that's mm -hmm. the first rung of the ladder. And to do that, you have to have three solo flights. So yeah. I'm in this called a Zedberg. It's a like a flying barge, and you, you go around. I got three, so I'm up there flying by myself at 16, um, and got my, got my got my license. So really chuffed. But put that to one side. When it came to what am I going to do with my life at 17, um, I just thought the forces are the way out. 
I couldn't, I didn't fancy myself in the army or the navy, but I thought the air force, having done this sort of ATC thing, so I walked into a careers office in uh, Norwich. Yeah, I, I was so arrogant at the time. I'd like to fly jet fighters, and this flight sergeant looked at me and went, "Have got any A levels?" And I went, "No." He went, "You don't uh... fly jet fighters, are you?" And I was like, "Oh dear, okay, all right." And I was about to walk out. He said, "Look, come in, have a cup of tea." Sat yeah. me down. And he said, uh, you know, well, just tell me. And I told him, you know, look, I just want to get out of Sheringham. I thought this would be yeah. a good route. So well, it can be a good route. You need a trade. So I had to do all of these exams. You know, they they they, 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 they set there. I did all those. And he went, I can offer you an awful lot of trades, he says. And then I told him about the wireless thing. Yeah. And he so went, I've got this hearing aid in here. <laughs> Yeah. I didn't pull it out. You know, I, mean, I just I described how I built a radio and he just yeah. looked at me astonished. And what you have to remember, a flight sergeant is a technical trade in the RAF. Mm. And he said to me, Well, I think we can offer you a really good trade. I said, What do you recommend? He said, electrical electronic engineering. Great. And I said, so and he said, Well, look, I've looked at your results here, I've listened to your history, but talk mm -hmm. to. So I said, Where do I sign? So mm. I got out of Sheringham, um, went along with my RAF career. Mm. And yeah, the, the other thing is, you go and do your training. You, yeah. you know, you, and it's really good training as forces training. You know, they train you well, and yeah. then you get to the end of that, and they say, right, we're gonna your postings are coming up. You put the postings mm -hmm. on a board, and this sergeant came up and said, uh, right there, Joe. I said, uh, we're going to improve your suntan. You're off to Nicosia. Wow. I, nice. I honestly, didn't know where Nicosia was. Nice. <laughs> I just went, oh, okay. I had to go to the library, get the atlas out, and realised yeah. it was in Cyprus in the middle of the Mediterranean. I'd never been yeah. abroad before. I'd never been on a commercial airline before, you know. Yeah. And a few weeks later, I'm in the middle of the Mediterranean. It was just extraordinary. Yeah. Um, and it's exactly what I needed. You know, I needed to travel, see the world. So it was ticking yeah. all the boxes. Um, yeah. So by the time I'd finished, yeah. the one thing, I was, one thing if you're in the forces then, if you're good at sport, you yeah. got an easy ride. Yeah. <laughs> you, you talked about well how did I come to play rugby it was yeah. quite simple at 17 um a flight lieutenant came up and said I hear quite fast I said I can run a bit yeah he said yeah. right you're playing rugby this afternoon I said well, I don't play rugby he said doesn't matter I give you the ball you run down there and you just put it over that line <laughs> so that's fair enough so I scored three tries on that game and I was getting feeling wow. really good unfortunately the next game we're up against this uh gruff Yorkshire side yeah. and uh I'm sort of trying to dance around this fellow, and he just went bang. Yeah. Pokes me, and I'm going, ref, ref, ref. And the ref just said, pick yourself up, son. It's rugby, you know. <laughs> so, you know, that was another salutary lesson. But I, I learned to play. I played for the RAF, um, got my cap, played at Twickenham. Um, yeah. I joined Wasps as well, and I played for yeah. their, for this team um, yeah. for a number of years. I had 121 games for the first team. Um, wow. it, it's interesting because as you look back, um, when I joined, I was the only black player playing um, first-class rugby, as it was called then, mm -hmm. in the country. There was no other. I wow. never met another black player for two years while I was playing. Um, yeah. So that was an interesting experience, you know, because unlike football, which is very vicious and vindictive, rugby players are, are completely different. They take the mickey, they take it. Yeah. So if I'm at Gloucester, say somewhere, you've got the shed, and uh, the guys have pints in their hands, you know, because you're on yeah. the wing, you're the closest person to the shed. Yeah. And they're just hurling jokes and everything at you, you know, and you just yeah. kind of take it. It's, it's not vindictive. I got the ball on the halfway line, scored the try. I yeah. got a standing position coming back again. And yeah. that's the difference between football and rugby. You know, yeah. they, they appreciate you doing something good. Uh, yeah. And it's something that that whole way of thinking sticks yeah. with you for you know a long time when 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 people um can appreciate you know as i said what what, what you've done and what you haven't done so did, um, did, you know, a point rugby, there if sorry? i can ask you what i wanted to ask you is that so you know you talked about in school when you were at school you lived in children's home which would have made you um maybe unusual amongst your peers or maybe made you stand out and then you're the only black rugby player which made mm -hmm. you stand out and it did at any point because when you tell it it is just that you went I'm going to go and do that and you did it and there wasn't a sense of you feeling like you didn't want to stand out or you might not be included did that ever 
Yeah, that's, that's a good that? point. Um, I, I don't. I just decide I'm going to do something. I go and do it, you know. <laughs> um, and, you know, the worst thing was what came about because while I was training, I was at Western Supermarket. RF Locking was where I did my training. And there's a guy called Garrick Fay down there that had gone to London and played for Wasps, and he was the local hero. And he wasn't a regular first-team player, but he'd gone from Western Supermarket Junior Club and played for a big yeah. club. And jokingly, one evening at the bar, I said, I'm going to do that. And everyone yeah. laughed. I thought, right, okay, I'm going to do that. And so yeah. when I got posted to West Drayton, which is in West London, yeah, and it's not miles from Wasps, yeah. uh, pre-season training, I literally just walked through the door and <laughs> said, I'd like to join Wasps. And everyone sort of looked at me and went, okay, come on, then, get kit on. And there was no, nobody looked at me because I was black. Nobody looked at me yeah. because you know, it was, you're there and you're judged as a rugby player. And that's what yeah. I love about rugby. You know, that's the first thing. So you can have somebody, I mean, now I've got lots of friends in rugby. Some are CEOs of big multinational companies. Yeah. But I was the captain and they yeah. played for me. And when you get having a few pints of beer, it defaults to that. You know, you're, yeah. you're still the captain. And it's yeah. just an extraordinary environment. Um, mm. And and you do sometimes, I mean, I, 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 I've done other sort of first. I ski, I, I love skiing. I am. Um, I learned to ski in Cyprus, ironically enough. The Trudos Mountains, the first 1,500 feet have got snow in those in the Mediterranean. So you can ski yeah. in the morning, go swimming in, in the sea. Uh, and uh, I, I got kind of didn't have much to do. Um, so I used to go up there um, just for weekends or take a week yeah. up there. I did a sort of preliminary sort of ski course because they were short of people to go and tell, show the paratroopers how to get down a mountain. So that was, <laughs> that was quite challenging. But when I came back to West Drayton, yeah. Um, Linden ski slope had opened the artificial ski slope. I used to yeah. go down there, uh, got qualified, it was good because they were paying me money. And uh, yeah. I spent four years down there, and I was the first black ski instructor for artificial ski slopes in the UK as well. And it was wow. quite interesting. You, know, you get people turn up and <laughs> sort of go, Ski instructor, that's me, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. Go, oh, but you know, once you got talking, yeah. it all went away, you know, but it, it, it's your ability to deliver is what you're being judged on there and how yeah. you deliver it um so I'm just now i'm also thinking you know paras have got a reputation you must respect you know you respect respect them and their experience and their skills you're going i'm going to show the paras how to ski down a mountain i just they just i love it so much like oh, but, you, know, you know the, the great <laughs> thing about force to the army um yeah. They they just right said this is your ski instructor he's going to tell you how to get down a mountain you know yeah right, okay so I'm twenty years old <laughs> you know, with all these twenty paras that have probably killed yeah. half the world in front of me and okay right right okay let me take you through this one then you know they're yeah. flopping all over the place but at the end of the day they managed to all they wanted to do is snowplow down a mountain uh, yeah. and, with a sack on the back yeah. and I got a tick in the box but yeah. yeah you learn you learn very quickly how to Get the best out of people as well um because yeah. you are set a goal and you have to go and achieve it so yeah powers or otherwise and how did you find it talk to me about when you left the raf and, and moving into stevie street you want to call it that what was that like for you when what 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 prompted that move um you get to a point in the forces where you decide i'm going to be in it for 30 40 odd years or i'm not mm. and I I got as much out of the RAF as I could is the way I felt mm. about it. Um, you got to remember, I wasn't. I mean, <laughs> I made neg negligible effect on the defence of this country. Quite frankly, you know, I was afraid <laughs> of that. But I ended up with an HNC in electrical electronic engineering, which right. is a reasonable qualification. Yeah. Um, I I got a pretty good sports record. I got my cap for the RAF. I was a combined services pole vault champion. I did all of that stuff. <laughs> so it meant I wasn't exactly fighting wars. You know, they were. The sport was very important then, so you know yeah. I'd get flown all over the place to do my sports thing, yeah. um, and I saw a chunk of the world. So I, I got, my, yeah. I thought I've gone as far as I either go for life or I get out now, and I thought I'll yeah. get out now. Mm -hmm. I applied for six jobs with computer companies because you got to remember I'm I'm, I'm in mainframes. I'm quite experienced. Yeah. I got yeah. five interviews. I got yeah. offered four jobs. Wow, and that was quite a surprise. I thought I would struggle to get jobs. Yeah. But yeah. on paper, I didn't realise how um, forces training was highly regarded in the industry. Yeah. I also mm. had the qualifications to go with it. Mm. Uh, and, and and they kind of, you know, I thought I thought being black, to be honest, might be a stumbling block. Yeah. It wasn't. 
you know, they saw through that and saw me, you know, and, and I yeah. got the job. I ended up working for ICL down at the uh, Solgrave House down at the BBC, their mainframes mm -hmm. don't have to fix all of those. Yeah. Um, and actually made me site manager as well after about two years. So it's, it's quite it's quite interesting. It's um, quite, you must be one of the few people like at that point in time when they've gone and looked at your CV and gone, right, this bloke says he does skiing, gliding, pole vaulting, rugby. Yeah, I did. Yeah, <laughs> hey, I mean, was, there was actually come, did them. It know, wasn't, you know, people yeah. say make it up. But yeah, I don't. God. I don't. Wow. I, if I ever write an autobiography, I mean, I think people will believe it. I, I, my life has been crazy, <laughs> and and it's that, that old adage, you know, just try it, succeed yeah. if it works. Now you don't always succeed, but you know, there's been quite a lot of success as well as failure. So you know that that's that's quite important. Um, so you know, I I left the RAF. I, I came into yeah. City Street. I adapted, but what I underlying all of this was also what I used to do at Wembley um, in the arena and the stadium. I used to manage thousands of people. And how? This came about how oh, you're going to tell me how, aren't you? I'm like, how do you yeah. do that at the same time as working at ICL? What's the uh, deal? Oh, yeah. I mean, it was it was long hours. Um, what happened is, while we were playing rugby, a guy called Dave Griffiths used to be the manager of Wembley Stadium. Right. And uh, the GLC were threatening to revoke their licence unless they got things sorted out because the who had been on and they just said, right, I want everyone on stage. Everyone just charged up. Absolute chaos. Yeah. Had to stop yeah. the concert. And he had this great idea. I'll bring the rugby boys down. They'll sort it out. Uh, well, as you can imagine, I mean, it was twice as bad. All the forwards are having a punch up down the front. Yeah, <laughs> the backs weren't, you know, weren't getting involved because they were chatting all the women up. But I, I don't right. recognize that at all, you know. Right. But the, the short of it was, there was about four of us said, "Look, give us a few months, we'll get it sorted." And you know what we did put in place was the block system that you have now, where you have stewards at the top, you have security that can come in, all of those things that yeah. you know virtually most venues have now we mm. developed that over time and uh i was there for a decade it was it, it was crazy and wow. you've got to remember it was the biggest venue in london the stadium yeah. was a arena so every band that was touring big band yeah. played there and yeah. i was able to just go and take photographs you know that uh, sat in a box for 25 years until i had them digitized um yeah. i suddenly realized i'd got you know Madonna, Michael Jackson, um, not Michael Jackson, Stevie Wonder, um, you know, yeah. or, or just incredible. Yeah. Um, so I had a chat with uh, Getty Images and they just, yeah. off, you know, yeah, we'll have those, you know. So, you know, when poor uh, Tina Turner died not so long ago, that a lot of my pictures were syndicated around the world, you know, in various wow. periodicals and things like that. So, And um, having seen some of these photos, and we'll put links into where people can look at them online, these are not like, hobbyist pictures so when you talked about building a radio when you were a child I take it that you had some knowledge capacity interest understanding of photography cameras were you just lucky <laughs> I, I I always had a passing interest just to take holiday snaps you know okay. like everybody else did you know holiday I mean? snaps of it, Tina Turner yeah, yeah. It's a <laughs> it, was, it was it was it was hit and miss with right. with with you got to remember the environment you're in. You, 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 you're, you're in the crowd. They're bouncing up and down. You've got light yeah. levels all over the shot. You've got stuff. And it's a very, very difficult environment. And yeah. it took me a year to teach myself how to get a shot, you know, be able yeah. to just look at something, set your camera and click, yeah. you know, because so, you couldn't do it on automatic. It had to be stopped down because of the light level. All, all the technicalities go with it. Yeah. Uh, so I taught myself. I mean, literally taught myself. And because I yeah. had this great opportunity to go from concert to concert to concert eventually yeah. got it right and you know I'm, I'm i'm banging out pictures like we're going out of style you know and just yeah. putting them in a box um so oh, wow. it was just a, it was just a golden period really you know for a lot of the artists you know a lot that you know bowie and freddie and, mm. and and george harrison and, and i don't know there's just so many that are no longer with us and, and yeah. I managed to them during that period i mean george michael's a classic example you know of wonderful wonderful voice great singer yeah. but a troubled child you know and so yeah. um but it's the right place the right time and taking the opportunity is uh, essentially you know um, what i did and you were doing this so that this is that was what was very interesting to me actually is that concurrently you've got your career in you know an icl would have been one of the biggest i guess uh, computing firms in the world at the time probably uh, well they were the biggest in the uk yeah certainly UK. Yeah. 
and yeah. you're at the same time you've you've got this security work slash photographing the biggest performance of the day um where does that take you next well i mean fixing mainframes good it's good money uh, and yeah. doing well the bit i always was troubled with um was the sales guys because they would sit on stuff doesn't exist. They'll be up at the bar, yeah, on expenses, having a great time. Yeah. And it was people like me that had to sit and fix the stuff that they'd ordered, and I usually ordered the wrong parts and everything else. Yeah. So these massive, you know, 10 million pound mainframes work. Yeah. Thought, hmm, I'd seem to be in the bar rather than down here. So yeah. I left ICL and got a work, uh, got a job with DEC, Digital Equipment Corporation, mm -hmm. which actually was the second biggest. A computer yeah. company in the world at the time after I see yeah. uh, after IBM and I went into sales and yeah. did pretty well there I ended up um actually with about 60 people uh, in my uh, mm -hmm. I was managing they were everything from sales people to consultants to techies to support mm -hmm. people and I was looking at part of the energy industry to you know the electricity side which yeah. had recently been um privatized mm -hmm. so um that things things work together the fact i've been doing all this stuff and we're still doing all this stuff at wembley and the rainbow and everywhere else and if you think about the fa cup final or you think about a big concert we have about 400 stewards there now yeah. that's an interesting logistical exercise because you can't manage 400 people so it's yeah. a hierarchical structure you put in place they're the interface to the crowds you have supervisors you have area this yeah. i'll be up here um just waiting for the stuff to come through and invariably it's been filtered through the rest so people are either very angry so you yeah. have to kind of calm people down or whatever else or throw them yeah. out uh, and you know you, you dealt with big problems all the time mm -hmm. and that actually was a good training ground for industry mm -hmm. as well yeah. so <laughs> i kind of learned how to interact and talk with people because yeah. that gap had been missing in the children's home so i made up for it as i went through all of these things so yeah. You know, the, the next step was Dick. Uh, and and then when I was there, um, a guy called Peter Canuck, actually, he was in charge of consulting at Microsoft in the UK. He came and did a talk to one of the electricity companies, and I was sat there listening. And if I had to distill it down, Bill Gates mm -hmm. essentially was saying, hardware is a commodity item. Mm -hmm. It's about the software, stupid, to uh, coin a phrase from Clinton, you know. Yeah. And the intelligence is around the software. Yeah. And I thought, I'm the wrong side of the line here. I'm in the commodity item area. Right. So I had a chat with Peter and he said, oh, I think they're recruiting actually, and they could do with people like you. So I'm getting mm -hmm. excited. Um, got in contact with the recruiters and they said, oh, we closed the books two days ago. Uh -huh. uh, and we've taken 12 people to be interviewed. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, oh, for goodness sake. Now, fortunately, he's got a Scottish accent. And mm -hmm. I just thought, I'll have a little punt. I said, you don't play rugby, do you, for London Scottish? And he went, yeah. I said, I don't play rugby. <laughs> Oh, we had a 20-minute conversation about rugby. And he said, right. I'll, I'll add you to the list. So there was 13. Yeah. Number 13. Mm -hmm. got the job and I was one of them, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, I ended up being the European Group Manager for Microsoft. Um, and you got to remember, these were rock and roll days. This was Microsoft yes. was really just trying to establish itself in the world. The, 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 you know, a computer on every desktop and all that sort of thing. Rolling Stones, um, wasn't it? They did Start Me Up. Was uh, that well, I, remember, I remember that. Yeah, we were over in, uh, where were we? Miami. And they had yeah. three songs. And uh, the, the other two, they were good. And then they put Start Me Up on. Yeah. And we were waiting for it. That was it. You know, and yeah. it, became the, it became the actual anthem for Windows yeah. 95. If it was a, it was 95 a, it was, oh, yeah. mm. I, I, what I liked about Microsoft in the early days was I, I used to quite early on I met Steve Barman I used to deal with him because I, I was trying to introduce them to partners and things like that because mm. if you remember rightly it was all about the channel and selling stuff um, but you know we knew the back office was coming we knew other stuff you know NT and things and we needed additional help um, from consultancy companies, hardware mm -hmm. companies, software companies. And my job was to go and have these relationships and sign them up around Europe. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and so, Barma, <laughs> who was a great character, um, we, we were having real problems because I was getting thrown out. I'd go to KPMG in Geneva and they'd say, you're on the desktop, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, you go to HP, you get it. Uh, yeah. It's just literally making no headway at all. And we sat down over in Seattle. I said, look, I need a hook. I need something. And he said, don't they realize we're only taking uh, $1 in every 10 that's generated for these solutions? 
Mm. Bingo. We yeah. had it. Yeah. So I then walked in and said, we're taking one dollar. There's nine dollars worth of business here for mm. all these platforms being put in. Do you want some of that? And that was the breakthrough. I started getting yeah. in other deals. And Deck, I signed up and they trained mm. He just went on and on. So mm. it's, it's actually become billions of dollars worth of business you know when when you look back at the last 25 30 years you know it's uh, it's fantastic and, but the, the and... point that's going to make is that in those days you could fail mm. because it was so new um you were encouraged to go and take risks push the envelope you know to yeah. try and establish and if you failed it wasn't a bad thing because mm. what people wanted to know is why did you fail how did you yeah. fail? The coin, and you'd write it up, and it would get circulated, mm. and and people would then obviously not make that mistake again, which yeah. was refreshing. Uh, I don't think they do it now. And the only other area I know they do that is the aviation industry. You know, because I was mm. part of that with the helicopter thing. If there's a problem with a helicopter or any aircraft, um, mm. you write a report, and it gets added to the sum of the total of knowledge that you've got in the aviation industry, so you can start looking yeah. at trends for things going wrong, etc. And it's encouraged, and people do it. Um, Microsoft used to do that in the early days. Yeah, and and you know, actually, because a thought had popped into my head about, well, you were kind of in the forces, and then you've worked for a very large organization, but, 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 but Microsoft was in its early, early, early days yeah. then, yeah. and things yeah. were very different. Yeah. Um, there's, only, there's only a few hundred of us in the UK. We literally yeah. fit in the building. In Winnersh. Yeah. Uh, it was it was the winner's triangle yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah right um <laughs> there's so many people that said i wish i joined when it was at winner um yeah. Yeah. <laughs> when people just got obsessed about the stock price um where does that where do the helicopters come in then um i've always liked flying i mean atc i've got the gliding license and mm -hmm. I, I i you know i i always just like the thought of flying helicopters from a kid as well i always used to watch mm. whirly bird or whatever it was on the telly and things like this mm. um and helicopters came about because i was always going on about it and my then girlfriend sort of got fed up with it and said i'll buy you a trial flight go and uh -huh. have a yeah so yeah. i'm sitting there for my this is my birthday and i you know you're all over the show i can't fly a helicopter but the the instructor next to me said if you really want to fly a helicopter just just do it you know yeah. and so we landed walked into the uh into the cabin and i said right where do i sign i literally yeah. it, was, it was literally that yeah. um nine months later i had my flight i had a, I had a helicopter pilot's license so i could just go all over the place um but you didn't on... have a levels so i don't know how you're allowed for a helicopter <laughs> i had money <laughs> that's the difference yeah, <laughs> yeah it, it changes everything um but it, it's, it's, it's outside of the raf this is Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Interesting. Yeah, no, I, I, I fulfil that. And and you've, it, it's not just helicopters. I mean, I, I spent twenty years flying them. I, I, I was even lucky enough to have my own helicopter as well. And, uh, wow. So you know, and it, it, it was always interesting when you're in an airfield and you, you know you come up, you've, you've just done all the paperwork and everything else, and you're yeah. walking up to the helicopter. I'd fly jet rangers or R forty fours, and you could see the people behind me going, "He's not going to fly that. He's opening the door." <laughs> and you go around to do your a check you know you had to make sure yeah. it's airworthy and, that. and then i get inside and you could see everyone singing you could almost read do we call the police is he actually going to do this you know and then you know headphones on blah blah off you go wind it up and i always just you take off and just hover like this smile yeah. and then go you know it was, it. It was a wonderful wonderful feeling you know uh just flying that but I, I also did other flying as well i did uh paragliding i still love paragliding yeah. in the ups in the summer and yeah. um, it's one of those, you know, where you've just got literally paraglider. You could be up in the air for hours, you know, and you've wow. got to get the thermals right and everything else, all the upcurrents coming off the side of a cliff. Yeah. Um, you have to be careful because it can be quite dangerous, but it was just a wonderful feeling. So, you know, absolute freedom. And I remember one time there was this eagle that was just mm. going around and, and they have feathers on the end of their wings that can sense uprising currents. Mm. And I just thought, I'll follow you. And it, literally, we were we were doing this in a thermal. Wow. It, it got fed up and just went off. But, you know, it yeah. just, it's one of those sort of at one with nature moments, you know. So, yeah. I, don't know. I, I still fly drones now, actually. I, I just quite enjoy flying drones around the place. So I've got this affinity yeah. with flying that I've always had all my life. And uh, just give it a whirl, see what happens. And and how did you, because it seems to me like you're, 
life is like very full like I will have a full-time job and I'll do crowd control at Wembley and as you say you were managing the kind of hierarchy of stewards for example while taking mm. pictures of Tina Turner um but you're you know working and getting your helicopter license and mm. where where does that what power is that where does that kind of come from most people just want to go to bed after they've done a full day of selling <laughs> I, I i do wonder myself actually um i sometimes wonder whether it comes from the children's home to be absolutely mm -hmm. honest when you haven't had a life when you've been deprived you want to make the most of every 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 second you know yeah. and if i get opportunities i want to do so i try it you know mm -hmm. i don't i don't all succeed nobody does but i succeed in quite a lot of things you know because yeah. I, I stopped the whole stewarding thing. I stopped when I joined Microsoft because I couldn't possibly do it. I, yeah. I was uh, the European group manager. I did 43 overseas trips one year, of which five of them went to America for a week yeah. at a time. So I, Heathrow was oh. my second home. So I yeah. stopped it. One thing I did keep, though, was the London Marathon. So okay. I was I designed along with uh, a friend of mine. We designed the finish of the London Marathon when it went from <laughs> Westminster Bridge to um, yeah. the Marathon. We were actually the first commercial event ever in the Mall. that had wow. births and marriages, kings and queens coming through. And that, that was interesting. You're sitting in front of a group of people, Parks Department, the military, all of yeah. this lot. And uh, they're saying, right, so you're going to bring 35,000 runners down here on a Sunday. Yes. Yeah. And you're going to have another 100,000 people milling about, you know, to meet them. Yes. Yeah. And then the major turns up and says, but we're going to be changing the guard on Sunday. When, yeah. How are we going to do that? I said, well, I'm sorry, you can't. You'll have to find another route. <laughs> well, I've never seen anything like it. We've yeah. been doing this for God knows how many years, blah, yeah. blah, blah. So tactical withdrawal. And there's a guy called Chris Brasher, who, who um, along with John Disley, they were the ones that came up the London Marathon. Mm -hmm. Chris was a fantastic guy. Um, didn't suffer fools gladly, but he rang up and I said, look, i got a problem, Chris. Um, household cavalry are a bit upset. They can't do the changing of the guard. Mm -hmm. He said, leave it with me. I said, you can better get this one sorted. He said, yeah, I'm in 10 Downing Street tomorrow. I'll get it sorted. Two wow. weeks later, we have a meeting. The major's there. And, and his only comment was, you obviously have friends in high places. You know, <laughs> that, that was it. Wow. But that was that was a really fabulous experience, you know, doing something that nobody had done before. And uh, yeah. we, we pulled it off. And essentially, the design is still the same design that Rob Saunders and I came up with all those years yeah. ago. Um, and I was the Finnish director for about 20 years and then um i had to stop that yeah because uh i was looking at the 2012 olympics and there was okay. an agreement between london marathon and the olympics that they wouldn't take people from their organization mm -hmm. so stop that i joined locog the london organizing committee of the olympic games in 2009 mm -hmm. and spent three years designing crowd safety management plans for 31 venues mm -hmm. and the paralympic venues as well which incredible when i look back that was eight million people i think mm. oh, how did that happen but it, that was a rock and roll time as well it was just extraordinary you know um and it's one of life lessons actually um mm. i always tell people don't let anybody tell you you can't do anything you know yeah. if you feel you can get on with it just do it just do mm. it and then i think i thought um i'm guilty of that myself and I always use the example of 2011. We were doing a number of practice events, one of which was the cycle one. It starts in the Mall, goes down through Surrey, and it goes around Box Hill, which is really iconic. Trust, yeah, you know, yeah, uh, National Trust area. And uh, we wanted a couple of thousand people just to be there to test it. I got a phone call from this woman that said, uh, "I'd like to bring two wheelchairs up there." Yeah. And I said, "I'm sorry, you can't do that." You know, I mean, to get up, we we had health warnings for people walking up there. We had a yeah. water station halfway up. It was, it was quite demanding, you know. Yeah. I said, it just isn't possible. She said, well, can I try? So we can, but I think you're not going to get anywhere. Forgot about that. Yeah. A week later, I'm down there and I got the radio call. Can you come up here? Someone wants to talk to you about wheelchairs. I thought, okay. Went up there. She stood there and she said, do you remember me? I said, oh, yeah, you're the one that said you're going to bring a couple of wheelchairs up here. And she stepped yeah. to one side. There's two wheelchairs behind her. I, I just went, how on earth did you get up here? 
what I hadn't realized was these are um, specialist wheelchairs. They're, they're ruggedized wheelchairs. There's a team yeah. around them and they do extraordinary things. They go do, I don't know, climb up Snowden and, uh, you know, yeah. do things that nobody thinks they can do. Yeah. And I was proved wrong. I mean, I just stood there and totally, totally wrong. Um, yeah. As a result of that, I, I put 50 wheelchair places in place during the Olympics opposite the cafe at the top there, in the car park. Yeah had a shuttle running from the car park going up down to shuttle people backwards and forwards you know um, yeah. and that's a commitment I gave her when I stood that's the only way I could think of getting out of it but yeah um, <laughs> I used to think about one percent of people with disabilities we will cater for each venue you know yeah. so you know you can you default into stereotype because you can't see it because you yeah. don't believe it could be done doesn't mean to say somebody else can't do it and, yeah. and I always think about that thinking you know I, I I just fell into that trap, and uh, she proved me wrong. <laughs> and 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 on that theme, because you mentioned that um, you're the sort of first for you as a as a black man, and people looking at you when you were about to fly a helicopter, from um, an educational perspective, given the um, circles in which you're moving, where you're operating on a professional level, were there ever times when people uh, expected you to have gone to a specific uni or expressed the prize that you didn't? Absolutely. Everybody thought I'd gone to university. Everybody thought I had a degree. I was mm. quite good at masking things like that. You know, when you, I think if you think about your career, a standard career, I've done most things, but in the wrong order, that's, that's my problem. <laughs> but if you think about when you leave uni, you're yeah. 21. 22 you may do a master's I don't know but then you start going to industry and you start working your way through 10 years later that degree actually doesn't mean that nobody says have you got a degree but mm. it's about experiences what you're capable yeah. of doing yeah. I kind of bypassed the degree thing and got the experience and what you're capable of doing so people mm. didn't even bother talking about that um yeah. actually I've got a degree by the way I I got a degree sometime late in crowd safety management I'm only one of 25 people in the country that have got it um wow. and you know because what I needed to do was upgrade my skills for the Olympics for a start um, yeah. they were those things they wanted to see degree so I thought I'll get a degree so and it's also a personal thing as well you know to say I can get a degree if I need to yeah. um yeah. but but you know because and then as a result of the Olympics when it came out of that you know it's what you're going to do and I did a lot of consultancy stuff um I was in Saudi Arabia with the Jeddah New Jeddah Stadium I was in Azerbaijan I was all over the place but yeah. one thing I did do is expert witness work and that really is quite interesting when you see it from the other side when something goes wrong and you have to sort of deconstruct that and right. see or not they met um, the, the reasonable bar that lawyers talk about. Um, did they have a license? Did they have people trained? Were they, were, did they do the correct procedures? Da -de -da -de -da. Mm -hmm. And then you submit your reports for the lawyers mm -hmm. and the courts to take into consideration you know, within these cases. And that I found quite fascinating. So could you offer like, uh, you don't have to name a specific example. So uh, you wouldn't have had to have been at the place where the incident happened, if you're called as an expert witness, what, what would that look like if you could? First thing you get is a whopping great file from mm -hmm. the lawyer. <laughs> There's all the stuff. And you yeah. have, to, have to go through that. Now, what, what you're looking at is it's after the incident mm -hmm. and somebody's got injured invariably. And yeah. um, you have to understand, was this just an accident? Mm -hmm. uh, could it have been prevented, which is the most important thing? And of course... Yeah. Uh, insurance companies are all looking to see do I need to pay out or don't I need yeah. to pay out uh, yeah. so you know they will say what percentage chance and I wouldn't do any of that I just make just lay the thing out as to this is what happens this is the uh, uh, the environment that they were in they were licensed they're trained they do this they do that this is the op what should have happened and this is what did happen you know right. and, and so it's it, it, it was just interesting work. I, I did everything from stabbing incidents to people having heart attacks to um, yeah. people getting cut on non-fictional glasses, people taking the mickey, trying to claim. You know, there was all sorts yeah. that came through, big festivals, nightclubs. Um, yeah. And it was just having gone through three, three and a half decades of stuff, mm. you then flip it and you just read some of the stuff there and you just think, oh, no, 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 this isn't right. You know, this is all, yeah. The, yeah. And, and you could, you're able to just rise above that and put some sense around those incidents. Um, so I, I quite enjoy that. I quite enjoy yeah. that. Yeah. Um, 
And you mentioned you're kind of semi-retired. So how did you get to this point? What did you leave behind and what have you kept? Yeah, I mean, I like I like the interaction with people. I, I, I enjoy that. So the things that I've kept allows me to have that um, that that relationship. Things I've left behind, again, it is interaction. I mean, I, I, I used to do quite a bit of lecturing and things at university, at Bucks University. I used to be a guest lecturer at Surrey University. Um, I was actually an associate member of the Emergency Planning College. I used to go up there and talk because, you, you know, over the years, you pick up an awful lot of skills um, and experience and you're able to then weave that around courses or whatever's required. Yeah. Um, so I, I I do miss that side that that side I do miss because you know it's interesting seeing people's light eyes light up when you start talking about you know some of the some of the stuff that's gone on and you can just see them beginning to advance their thinking and perhaps hopefully taking that back into the workplace and making places safer for people. Um, and that's all around the yeah. crowd safety management. So you would have been lecturing in that capacity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's 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 you know the th- things like. Um, it was to be interesting. You've got a big football stadium that hold mm. 50,000 people, for instance, and suddenly they're going to put a concert on there. A football yeah. match is, you know, 45 minutes each way. You have a half time, people come mm. preloaded up, they all go there, and then they go. Yeah. If you're yeah. going to have a concert, it's typically 12 hours. Yeah. Uh, typically, a concert will have a high percentage of females, for instance, but yeah. you've got the majority of your loser males, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're using the pitch um, as an area, a viewing area rather than yeah. just being the stands. You've then got to think about, um, you know, feeding people drinks, how people yeah. move. You've then yeah. got to think, something goes wrong, can I get all these people out within a prescribed time? And yeah. if my main exit area is gone, can mm. I still get them out in a prescribed? You know, there's there's a load yeah. of stuff I used to throw in all over the place. So so it's it's interesting when you have to change people's thinking. You know, mm. it's not a football match. It's a, it's a rock concert, you know. Um, yeah. and, and, you know, it's a greenfield site. We're going to put 50,000 people in here. Is it safe? Can you do yeah. that? Can you people in? Can you get them out? You know, what about yeah. if it starts pouring with rain and the whole, you know, you know, all those what if sort of things and you build it into a plan. Yeah. Um, and the first thing that happens is the plan goes out the window and you have to start looking at <laughs> you know, how well, you, you manage that. You know, you just made me think that I like love going to concerts. I went to, it was a corporate one actually, uh, went to see Take That at Wembley. So, you know, oh, yeah, all expenses yeah, yeah. paid, lovely. But as I left, now you think about the demographic of that crowd, which was, take that, not in their prime prime, but it is mostly women and lots of women of a certain age wearing Gary Barlow T-shirts, say, Gary Barlow, will you marry me? <laughs> and we're leaving and there are mounted police. If you think, I think you've come to the wrong event. Because it's yeah. just like, if yeah, ever that, there that... were a crowd that were not going to cause you a problem. Yeah, it would yeah. be that I mean, yeah i mean that that that's bad planning as far as i can see you know um <laughs> you you have to understand the demographic of your crowd you have to understand <laughs> what you're going to do uh, but having said that um <laughs> i remember some of the most difficult concerts are middle-aged women and I, middle age <laughs> is kind of like 50s yeah. and uh going to a tom jones concert or going oh, well. to a Milo Todd's or something like that and uh you go there. I remember I can't remember a real faux pas once. I went to this, there's a bunch of Welsh women there and they were having a good time. They're fairly, mm. they had a few drinks. And uh, I just sort of went, I'll have a chat just to head this one off at the pass. And, you know, it's like hearted banter. And I said, and I said in an offhand moment, I hope you're not, you're not going to throw your knickers on the stage, are you? <laughs> and this woman just looked at me in disgust and went, absolutely not. I went down to Marks and Spencer's yesterday and bought a pair, which I'm going to throw at the stage. Oh, I love it. <laughs> so it's just, you know, you just, you just like, it's, uh, it's incredible. But no, it's, <laughs> your audience is the most, is the starting point for most yeah. plans that you need to do. And yeah. uh, you don't need maps, please. I'll take that. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Um, I love it now. That's why there's always so many women in uh, Marks and Spencer's. Tom Jones is always at the race course in Newbury. So um, <laughs> he's whipping <laughs> them up into a frenzy of shopping at M&S. Um, yeah. So today, thinking about when we were talking a little bit about this, you still heavily involved with your charity mm. and still working with WASP, working with still president. 
Um, you've got your images that are with Getty. Um, couple of questions, a couple of kind of closing questions, I suppose. One is, what do you think, like given the amazing experiences you've had so far and all that you have done and achieved, what has kind of put you in good stead that you think other people could go, oh yeah, I could learn from that. I could try and apply that. Yeah, I mean, um, it, it's always good when you have helped others. Um, I, I didn't, I didn't really notice that I was a role model mm. until I'd been playing rugby for about a year, mm. and then I think about, about two years it was, and then a couple of black players turned up at Wasps, mm. and they said to me, "I said, man, how are you doing? You know, welcome to Wasps." And they said, right, yeah, we heard you were here and you're playing for the first team. We thought we'd come here and give it a whirl because they were getting no traction elsewhere. And I thought, oh. And then two years later, a guy called Chris Oti came to Wasps. He came down from Cambridge with Rob Andrew and Bales and all that lot. Um, in my autobiography, it's going to be because of me, but that's really not strictly true. <laughs> um, and he ended up being the first black player to play for England in the modern era. Oh. And, you know, there is this line that's there. I was never good enough, unfortunately, to play for England, but he did. So, you know, you can suddenly sort of see that we then had this group of black players uh, at Wasps, of which one was an England player. Mm -hmm. And it just seemed as though there was an explosion after that. Suddenly, most clubs have black players. Now, you can't you, you can't go to a rugby club without half a team being black, you know. So, yeah. but it just, it, it, you know, I like to think from that, me walking through the door to a few people coming along, to Chris playing for England, to, you know, yeah. and, and just think, can I lay claim to that was me? Mm. I think there was an element of it was me, you know, which, which I'm, I'm really quite pleased about. So, yeah. and, and I always encourage people to just you know, look beyond the challenges look beyond the problems what does he want to do you know what does he want to achieve um i mean the big thing is um you know if i'm fairly philosophical about the whole thing i mean life is for living isn't it you know yeah. you get one shot at it so get on with it you know because you never know when you'll be under a bus or something you know it's just you've got to go for it um mm. and not put things off you know till tomorrow the next week the next month or whatever else um and don't be afraid of failure I mean, mm. that's what a lot of people do. Oh, I don't know. I think I might fail. I'm not sure it's going to work. Yeah. Not making excuses before you've even tried something, you know. Um, I mean, I think it was Samuel Beckett, wasn't it? He said, uh, um, try again, fail again. Never mind, fail better. Mm. Um, that's all sort of stuck in my mind is you'll never get it right first time. You might not get it right second time. But if you yeah. keep going, you learn those lessons and eventually you might just get there. And away you go. Yeah. yeah. My it's fantastic. And I do like that, you know, that sort of saying, I fancy giving it a go and I'm going to ask, I'm going to ask if I can try this, learn that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you, you, I, I think humans underestimate themselves at times. You know, we, mm -hmm. we're, we're a very capable species and we're our own worst enemies. Uh, yeah. You know, we've never climbed Everest. We've never got to the moon. We've never done all these amazing feats. If we'd have said they're going on, oh, I think we could do that. It's a bit difficult. One. <laughs> you, know, you, you have to give it a go. Now, I'm not mm -hmm. saying that's true of everybody in every aspect of life, no. but so many people talk themselves out of doing things. It's just extraordinary. Um, that's not my philosophy. Yeah. Okay. Well, what's next? I mean, <laughs> what's next? What have you done yet, though? Come on. That, that, that's a good question. I mean, what, what I'm working on now is I'd, I'd like to do more talking. That's that's the thing I do like. I like interacting with audiences. Mm. Um, so I'm working on a I'm working on a, a script for that. Um, mm. I've got the theme fairly well sorted out now, so I need to um, just align that with some positive messages and um, yeah. in, inspiring people to do that. That's one thing I mm -hmm. want to do. Um, I want to travel more as well. I, I've never lost the zest for traveling. I've, I've traveled all around the world, but yeah. I haven't done South America yet. That's one area I want to go. I've only been yeah. once to Africa. Um, yeah. So you know, I'd like to see more of the world because it's just yeah. a fascinating place. And, and I, I like cultures. I like different ways of viewing things. I'm off to uh, Vietnam and Cambodia next month. And uh, I'm really looking forward to seeing um, uh, the the war from the Vietnamese perspective. 
Um, yeah. I have so many friends in America that keep telling me they won the war, you know, and uh, history may just query that one a bit. But it's yeah. just nice because when I went to Cuba, it was again, it was another one where you, the Bay of Pigs and all the stuff that happened there. The Cubans have a very different recollection of what happened. I guess the truth always is somewhere in between. But yeah. I just like looking at other people's point of view, talking to people. Um, so I'd like to do more of that um, now that I'm not working as intensely as I have done over my lifetime so they're the, they're the kind of things I'm looking at wow well we will put the links into where people can find your work and the um, charities that you work with and I'll make sure I'll put a link for where people can connect with you and follow you because that autobiography well sounds like you've still got some stuff to put in it yet but um yeah what a story thank you so much though i really appreciate it no thank you tony thank you for having me i've really enjoyed it thank you